Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, dropping off and picking up. Now, Cam, this is a new year. This is our first full review of the year 2023. Uh, hopefully, it does a lot better than 2022. <laughs> sure, yeah, I'd like to think so. Always be optimistic, right, Scott? Uh, so they say, at least, anyway. Now, I, I was going to wax poetically about what I was hoping the year would look like, but I thought, let's bring in a philosopher. Mm. The Flick Philosopher. We have a very special guest joining us on the show for the second time. It is Miss Marianne Johansson. Hello, Marianne. How are you doing? Hi, guys. I'm doing really well. How are you? Doing wonderful. Glad to hear it. No, we're glad to have you back on the show, Marianne. But sort of what's been happening with you for the last, I think it's been over a year now since you were, you joined us before. It, it has been just about a year. Yeah, um, it's been it's been kind of a crazy year. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus because um, um, my mom died and sort of dealing with, you know, that sort of the, the fallout from that. So I haven't really written anything in a little while, but I'm sort of thinking about how to, you know, get back into the game and get my head into things. So this is actually, this is a good thing because it's gotten, it's gotten me thinking about films again. You got your review cap on again. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, have you in the last year, any spy movies jumped out to you at all? Anything taking your fancy that's come out? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really behind on, on, on my films. And, uh, you know, it's not quite a spy movie, but there's an excellent documentary about um, Alexander Navalny, the Russian um, sort of dissident and activist. And mm -hmm. it sort of has that sort of he, he's kind of got like a spy thing going on because he's, you know, lots of skullduggery and sneaking around and being, you know, hounded by the powers that be. So I can really recommend that film. It's just called Navalny. Um, other than that, I don't know. I haven't really thought about. I mean, it's not been the hottest year for spy movie releases. We are Operation no. Mincemeat. Did you catch that? I did, and I did really like that. That's really cool. Although I guess we could consider that a spy movie. Yeah, I thought that was fun. I think that's a really that's an untold story of World War Two, and um, really sneaky and interesting and absolutely fascinating. I guess there's also you know the Gray Man. There was a few in there, but. Yeah, not not like a big, you know, like Bond movie or Mission Impossible movie or anything like that. No. Well, there's years like, you know, 1995, there's like a, 2001 or something as well. We always talk about it's one of those years where there was just like 20 spy movies that came out and they were all in the top 100. Like it was insane. And obviously the 60s are just full of those years. But uh, yeah, 2022 didn't really jump out to me. Let, let's hope the release schedule for 2023 is chock full of espionage. There was an interesting film that did get a, a small release this year, which is sort of an anti-spy movie. It was called Rogue Agent. Um, and it's this is another one based on a true story about a guy who posed as a member of MI6 in order to scam people. And it's really, really interesting. Um, it's really sort of sneaky and kind of becomes, it's kind of a, like a, a sneaky romance um, or an anti-romance in that the, the one character that we follow is a woman who is a lawyer and she sort of caught on to what he was doing. And it almost becomes a sort of metaphor for like how women are gaslit and abused by, by men. Um, and it's, it's all through how he pretends to be this MI6 agent recruiting people into his, his work. It's really fascinating. 
That one is on our master list to cover for sure. Oh, cool. Yeah. I didn't even, I had not heard about that one. It's not really been buzzing around social media that I've seen too much. It must not have got that big of a release. It's, yeah, it, it got just a tiny release. Um, yeah, it didn't have a lot of buzz, but it's got a really good cast and it's, it's quite fascinating. And yeah, I'm glad you guys are going to cover it. And I'm curious, Marianne, because this is re- being recorded just at the end of 2022. Um, but anyone listening to this, it's 2023. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm just curious, as we're wrapping up the year, you know, everyone is writing best of the year lists and everything. If you had some favorite movies of the year that maybe people should be checking out. Uh, well, they're not spy films, but at the moment, mm-hmm. my, my best film of the year is an Irish film called The Quiet Girl. Uh, it's an Irish language film, which is really unusual. There haven't been many of those. Um, at the moment, it has had a um, a release in the UK, and it's getting an Oscar qualifying release in the US so that it can qualify for the Oscars as a foreign language film. Um, and it's just absolutely beautiful story about a young girl who spends the summer with um, relatives away from her family um, in about it's like the early 1980s, and it's just super, super gentle and sweet, um, but also a bit, It's she's about, I don't know, maybe 10 years old or so, and it's about her realization that the world is bigger than uh, her small life, and that grown-ups have you know, strange and mysterious um, and complicated lives that she's not really been previously aware of. It's just absolutely beautiful, and I really highly recommend that one. That's my best film so far, yeah. Very cool. When you when you said Irish film, I got yeah. a bit antsy because I thought you were going to say Michael Flatley's Blackbird that also <laughs> came out this year. Oh, I hope you guys are going to cover Blackbird because that is a spy film. I have and seen it, is... it. I saw it oh. at like a limited release in London, and yes. and we have we have put like a little review out. Cam's not seen it yet though because it's not had the North American oh. release. Yeah, um, it is. It's hilariously awful. It's yeah. It's so it's so much fun. I hope you guys cover this one as well because, yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't want to say too much and spoil it. <laughs> You're getting you flashbacks kinda... to Flatley, aren't you? <laughs> you can't even um, really, however bad you think it's going to be, it's you're not prepared. It's it, it's, it's truly it, an experience to watch. It is. It's definitely going to be a cult a cult favorite for years to come. I I saw it at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, and yeah. I think everyone was just hanging from the rafters by the end of the showing. <laughs> I I can see it being like a Rocky Horror. People are going to take you know slices of toast and throw it at the screen in the future. They're going to come. They're going to come with their hats. Uh, oh, I mean, the there hats. was like a, the hat fest of that. <laughs> the hats. So I funny. forgot about the hats. I wish you know. I wish some another critic described it as a porn movie with all the porn stuff taken out. Like it's all the filler oh, scenes in a porn yeah. film. And that's the perfect description of it. It's so inept. It's so wooden. It's, oh, it's brilliant. It's kind of like a movie made by someone who's sort of heard about spy movies, but never actually seen one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's all flatly. He wrote it. He directed it. He produced it. He stars in it. He financed it. This is what happens when people have too much money and nothing, nothing good to spend it on. It's crazy. What was Mark Commode's line? It, it, it's a disaster project or something like that. He said it was. Um, uh, uh, you see, it, they're not a vanity project, but a disaster project. Something like that. I'm probably butchering his quote, but yeah, it's actually getting like digital release over the new year. So I think Cam might finally be able to see it, and we can yeah. look forward to uh, showing him the flatly. Oh, we'll amazing. get you a hat. It's sort. Of, it's not quite on the level of the room, but it's it's definitely in the same realm. It's in the ballpark, isn't it? It's it's it round is. there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's close. 
Well, I don't think we're talking about Michael Flatley this week, but uh, Cam, I'll throw it to you. Uh, what have we got? Is it Tom Cruise sort of, you know, on the same level as Michael Flatley? I don't know. <laughs> Often in the same conversation. Sure, sure. Yes, we are going to tackle 2017's American Made starring Tom Cruise and directed by Doug Lyman. Yes, I mean, yeah, we're looking back at the year 2022 just before looking at the films we didn't mention the juggernaut that was Top Gun Maverick. So I thought, hey, let's get high with Tom Cruise. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, it works, technically speaking. But um, yeah, I think what I'll do is let me just jump in with the letterbox.com synopsis and then I'll come back with everyone's first experiences with the film. This is a quick one. American made, based on a true lie. The true story of pilot Barry Seal, who transported contraband for the CIA and the Medellin cartel in the 1980s. <laughs> okay, sure, that, that could be the logline for like a book or anything, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably the small stamp on the back of the DVD case, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I can easily start this one off. I had never seen this film, as per. Marianne, I'll go to you. Do you recall seeing this in the theaters when it on release? Um, yeah, I do. I went to a press screening of this, and um, I, you know, I kind of liked it. Um, it's really well done. It's very sharply written. Um, Tom Cruise is one of those performers that every time like one of his films come up, I'm like, oh god, Tom Cruise, and he's always amazing. <laughs> he's always he's so charismatic on screen, and you get so wrapped up in his character. I mean, always this happens to me pretty much every film I've ever seen him in and then I forget it because of all the other baggage that he brings with him but he is truly you know one of the last movie stars um my big thing with this film is that it's like very jaunty and sort of light and funny and it's ultimately about a really black spot on American you know recent politics and current events so I'm not sure that the tone matches kind of the awfulness of what it's depicting but I think it is, you know, it's entertaining. It's, it's funny in spots. And, you know, Cruise is, Cruise is always fun to watch. Yeah, I, I definitely can't argue with that. Cam, do you have any recollection at all? Yeah, I remember this one kicking around for a long time. Because um, I'll talk about it, you know, pretty soon when we do behind the scenes. But, like, it was a movie that even when they shot the movie in, like, 2015, they're like, it's coming out in a year and a half. And it was like, okay. And um, it was, I think it got even pushed back like nine months or something past the date they'd said. And so it was just like a very weird decision. So this movie was like kicking around for a long time. If you looked up, you know, Tom Cruise's filmography, when his latest movie came out, Doug Lyman's, it was just sitting there. And, um, you know, Scott and I, uh, and I tend to go to Star Trek conventions, as I think any listener knows. But one of the actors from Star Trek Enterprise, Connor Trenier, had a bit part in this movie playing George W. Bush, and would reference this performance coming up. And so I was very aware that this movie was out there. I think a lot of people it was a surprise when it came out, whereas I've been hearing about it through these conventions for quite a while. So it was one that when I finally saw it, there was a certain amount of anticipation. And I think I may have been kind of alone in that, in the room, but um, <laughs> because I just don't think people knew about it. It was kind of like a stealth release. And I remember enjoying the movie because it felt different from what Tom Cruise was typically doing at that point and still does. Um, this may be his last kind of real kind of character drama role when you look at what he does, which is like Mission Impossible films or Edge of Tomorrow, um, you know, Top Gun. He just doesn't make these kind of 
character dramas. Like it feels like something he would have made in the nineties. And so I really appreciated the movie for that. It had a definite Goodfellas veneer. Like it was kind of doing Goodfellas with sort of this, you know, CIA plot in the 1980s. And um, I think I walked out enjoying it, but it didn't blow me away. It was like, that was a fun two hour experience. It's a movie that they really don't make movies like this too often anymore. And so that was kind of what I dug about it. But I wasn't, let's just say it did not make my best of the year in 2017. Yeah, I I had to say, was that that was Connor Trenier as George W. Bush? It was, yeah. Oh my God, I'm a huge fan of Connor Trenier. I did not recognize him at all. He also has wow. an appearance. If you have you seen the Fablemans? No, not yet. Okay, keep your eyes peeled. He pops up in one scene, almost in the background with a group of kids. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm glad he's working. I, he's such an amazing actor, and I'm really sorry that he hasn't taken off the way that he deserved to. It's, it's a lovely guy in person, to be fair. I, I've met him several times. Cool. I even had dinner with him once, but that's wow. a whole other story. But um, yeah, the Connor Trenier pops up. That that was weird. But yeah, I'll get to my thoughts on the film in a bit when we get to the reviews, because obviously I hadn't seen it before. But I'm interested, because I know that there was some reshoots with this film. I was doing a little bit of reading beforehand. So Cam, can you set us a course through the waters of the behind the scenes of this film? Yeah, so this film was the product of a writer named Gary Spinelli, who, when you look up his um, filmography, it's very sparse. He had written a uh, 2012 film called Stash House, which starred Dolph Lundgren, and then he really just moved into this script for American Made. And it was a movie that had kicked around the uh, Hollywood for a little bit. It was on the 2014 Blacklist, which is the list of the best unproduced screenplays. And uh, it was snapped up by Universal for $1 million. And sort of the inspiration for this script, which was called Mina, it was called Mina all the way through shooting for about the year before it came out. It was The name was changed fairly close to the actual release date. Um, and so it was somewhat inspired by Goodfellas, as uh, Spinelli said. That was his favorite movie. And he kind of was just digging through you know, sort of American events in history, looking for some inspiration to write about. And he'd always wanted to do a gangster film. And he came across uh, Barry Seal's name while researching the CIA involvement in MENA. And the name just kept popping up. And he was like, decided to explore that further. And that kind of turned into that script. And so the script did catch the eye of Ron Howard. And Ron Howard was initially attached to direct it and then kind of passed on it. But Ron Howard's producing partner, Brian Grazer, was still enthusiastic about doing it and approached Doug Lyman. Now, Doug Lyman, we've talked about him in the past. He directed, of course, The Born Identity. We will talk about him again. But in the years post-Born Identity, he had done movies like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, Fair Game, um, The Edge of Tomorrow. So a couple spy movies in there we will tackle on the show in the future. And he'd... Um, fairly recently done a movie called The Wall, which people may have seen. It was a real box office bomb. Uh, it was like an Iraq War um, sniper film. Oh, I thought that was the Matt Damon Great Wall film. Is that something else? That was The Great Wall, I think. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting my walls mixed up. Did anyone see The Wall? I have not seen The Wall. I have not seen The Wall either. <laughs> I've seen the, the, not seen The Wall or The Great Wall or The Best Wall or any walls. <laughs> I've seen The Great Wall, and it's better than it should be. Have you seen Pink Floyd's The Wall? <laughs> I haven't, actually. Me neither. 
<laughs> this is not wall hearts, apparently. <laughs> it would, so it would seem. But the wall actually, interestingly, also made the 2014 blacklist. So Doug Lyman was clearly uh, combing through material uh, through this blacklist. But he was given the script and really liked it. And what appealed to him was shooting uh, plane chases for real. Tom Cruise in the pilot seat doing the stunts and performing these cha- these sort of chases and plane sequences. So that was kind of his number one reason for wanting to do the movie. Uh, he was also really drawn to the outlaw nature of the lead character and wanted to bring a certain Smokey and the Bandit flavor to it, which was what he actually specified in terms of his movie reference. Interestingly, his father was a prosecutor who investigated the Iran-Contra affair, and he said that had no bearing on really doing the movie. That kind of popped into his head later. Like, probably by in the press tour. And they're like, hey, so your your dad was doing it. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Shrug. He was like, I did know all about that. But uh, no, that's not the reason I made the movie. I mean, I, I did a little research after watching this film about the person, Barry Seal. Mm-hmm. And this plays very fast and loose with the facts. He did look like Tom Cruise, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Oh. Uh. That's actually not true, folks, by the way. His his nickname was El Gordo, which uh, I think in Spanish means fat man or big man. Yeah. Something like that. So, yeah. yeah. He looked nothing like Tom Cruise. I, I, I've never called Tom... Tom Cruise can never be called a big man. <laughs> no. And uh, they did make mention in the press tour that like Tom Cruise gained weight for the role. But you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, what? that's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I... I, I... Wow. <laughs> Is this what a filled out Tom Cruise looks like? I guess so. <laughs> Was he also on like Apple boxes the whole time as well? <laughs> that I don't know. Probably. <laughs> mm. And so uh, with Tom Cruise, what drew him to the movie was he said he loved the Mark Twain sort of vibe to it. The sense of irony and satire. He said Tom Cruise was his favorite author. And this movie just jumped off the page. So I wonder if you read the script. Tom Cruise said Tom Cruise was his favorite author. Is that what I said? (laughs) Well, that actually is true. But yes, Tom Cruise said Mark Twain (laughs) is his favorite author. Um, And so... Second is L. Ron Hubbard. (laughs) Third is Mark Twain. (laughs) He loves them all. That's right. But um, I guess... uh, I'd be curious to know what it's like to read the script. Like actually on the page if... uh, it feels maybe even more satirical just to read it. But um, he also really responded to the material because Tom Cruise said his favorite movie is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And that movie has a similar sense of taking a historical story and giving kind of an irreverent spin. And he was looking to kind of do that here. Sure. I would have thought the thing that attracted him to it was the fact he gets to fly planes and get paid for it. Mm, that's what I thought. When I rewatched the film again last night, I, all the flying that Cruz gets to do, and he's a real pilot, so I thought this is this is right up his alley. Yeah, I, I would. I didn't read about the backstory too much of this film. I genuinely would have thought he was the one who found the script and then, like, got Doug Lyman involved, sort of the other way around. It seems like the two primary people who have very, I think, obvious reasons for wanting to do this movie. That was not the reason they wanted to do the movie. <laughs> I'm I'm actually surprised to hear Cruz say, I mean, maybe the script reads differently than what ended up on screen, but part of my issue is that I, I don't feel like there's much sense of irony or, or even satire in the film. It's clearly slightly heightened, but it's pretty much depicting what happened. It's, you know, unless you think that the world is kind of beyond satire right now because we're just living in a satire. 
I don't know. It, it doesn't feel very satirical to me, except there's, there's one bit towards the very end, basically Cruz's last line in the film where he talks about what a great country America is. Yeah. Um, that's uh, clearly ironic given what's happening at, you know, what events are happening that that's cut into. But other than that, it just, it feels relatively straightforward and not very ironic or satirical. I wish there was more of that. That's why I kind of wonder if the, like the script had a little more of a sort of ironic or sarcastic edge to it that just didn't yeah. make it in the translation to the film. Maybe. Because, yeah, you know, actually, when you guys said you wanted me to come and talk about this film, I was like, wait, is this a spy movie? I guess it is because it has the, the CIA connection. But, yeah, my my first um, reaction was, wow, this is a lot like Goodfellas, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, but, of course, Goodfellas, this sort of the... There's an, uh, an, uh, not just an irony, but a, um, a sort of subtle commentary running through the whole film, unspoken, but that, you know, these are, de these are definitely bad guys in Goodfellas. Um, and they have a, a whole twisted sense of what it means, you know, what the American dream is and all. And it, I just don't think that comes through quite as well in American Made. Yeah. And uh, this film, as we talked about, as Scott referenced earlier, plays very fast and loose with history. And so, like, Doug Lyman said, this movie, he saw it as a funny lie based on a true story. Um, the whole CIA aspect of this film is pretty fictional. Uh, the Domnell uh, Gleason character is completely fictional. And it seemed like Barry Seal had flown covert missions in the 50s, possibly, with the CIA, but nothing tied into what the events of this movie are. Um, other characters like, you know, JB, the brother-in-law, are fictional. Um... And so, like, it was very much seen by the filmmakers as kind of this comedic riff versus something that was even trying to be a biopic. Mm -hmm. And they said many times on the press tour, this is not a biopic, this is not a biopic. But I do think it's something that, at the time, some viewers and critics struggled a little bit with, which was that, like, wait, what is this movie exactly? Well, do we really need a comedic riff, uh, riff on the Iran-Contra scandal? <laughs> I mean, that's... And if we do, I'm not sure this is it. Right. It's, it's interesting looking at the sort of duality of your two films with us and like interesting looks at bad moments in American history. Mm. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that in a bit, but please continue, Cam. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, a note on the production, there was actually a, a real tragedy on the set where uh, two crew members were killed in a plane crash in the Columbian Mountains, um, one of whom was a stunt pilot named uh, Alan D. Berwin who actually had a cameo in Zero Dark Thirty, which, Marianne, you were on last time. So yeah. weird wow. connection there. Um, and uh, as, as I referenced the title change, which came basically, the movie had a set release date way further off after you know production, and then they pushed it back nine months and gave it a new name. I This, seemed, this popped up in legit sources. It seemed like the Mina thing, they changed it because it had, you know, Mina is in Arkansas, and there was issues to do with they didn't want the Clinton family to feel like they were implicated in this <laughs> uh, because Bill Clinton was the governor at the time. Hillary Clinton was, of course, up for, you know, going for president for the 2016 election. And so American Made became the new title, which I honestly think like you can say like we've encountered many times where they had ridiculous name changes for movies. But I do think from a marketing standpoint, American Made is a better name than Mina. Absolutely. I don't think most um, 
Americans would un, would even get the reference to Mina. I mean, if it was called Little Rock, Little Rock, you might get a connection to the Clintons, but Mina connected to the Clintons, I don't, I don't see that at all. And and it's actually that's ironic what you're talking about, Cam, because the film does definitely does implicate the Clintons, or at least Bill Clinton, because you know he's got a little name check, you know, as governor of Arkansas at the time, and. Yeah, that's that's really strange, actually. But yeah, I agree that Mer- American Made is a much better title. It takes a few stabs at a few different presidents. Oh yeah, definitely. A, the other one where like it has his wife there about let's just say no to drugs, and then like cutting into them paying for drugs. Like it, it, it's kind of fun with that. Oh yeah. Oh, it's a huge, a huge uh, swipe at at Reagan and Nancy Reagan. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well deserved too. <laughs> And so this movie had a budget of $50 million. Domestically, it did 51.3, international 84.3, for a worldwide total of 135.6. So, like, no one lost jobs over this, but it was not, like, the breakout hit they probably hoped it would be. $50 million is pretty cheap for a movie that looks like this, though. Mm -hmm. Especially with with all the air stunts and, you know, some, well, Cruise is pretty much the only big name in it. But, yeah, that's, that's actually pretty reasonable. I actually thought that that number would be higher. You're right, yeah, Marianne. Yeah, I would have thought I, so. I, I mean, not like maybe 100, but like 80 or something mm. like that, just somewhere in between. Because it doesn't... I don't think this film... I'll take that back. I do think this film looks bad, but I'll get to reasons why. <laughs> but I, I think it looks like it's there's some money on the screen, at least, and not yeah. just, you know, 20 million lining Tom Cruise's pockets. Exactly. I would wonder if he just took a back-end deal on it, so his actual payout wasn't factored into the budget. I could see that. Mm. And it's, it's interesting to note, we haven't mentioned this yet. This is the first time we are talking about a Tom Cruise film. Yeah. Well, we did War of the Worlds on the Patreon, but yes. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Have you not Have you not done any of the Mission Impossible films? No. Well, we wow. have a certain philosophy with those because it's oh, like okay. the Bond movies, uh, people love the Bond movies. And so those are really big you know, hits for us on the podcast. And so it's like, we got to space those out. And then the Mission Impossibles will very likely follow those, right? Those are kind of the, the big, like, uh, lightning bolt um, movies. Otherwise, we're just talking about American-made mm. for years <laughs> on end, you know? No, yeah. it, it's, it's it's just about pacing out. And also, you know, Tom Cruise has also got, like, Night and Day and stuff like that. I'm surprised mm. he hasn't made his way onto the show yet. I think it was just a bit of an error on our part. So I'm glad we're finally rectifying it. And uh, I don't know where this will rank in, in the pantheon of Tom Cruise spy films by the time we've finished compiling this list. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see if he makes more. True. He yeah. Uh So this landed at number 64 for the year between Girl's Trip and A Bad Mom's Christmas. So <laughs> That's a uh, Girl's Trip. I'm trying to think about Girl's Trip. Mm. Do I know that one? No. I remember Girl's Trip was a real kind of breakout hit, I think. Um, I get it mixed up because there was also Rough Night. Um, and that were very similar types of movies. Um, but I believe Girls Trip was the good one. <laughs> that was the one with Tiffany, Tiffany Haddish and Regina Hall. Yeah. Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah, yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, I don't think I've seen it. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a sandwich. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and the top three for the year, number one was Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Number two was Beauty and the Beast, the live-action remake. And number three was The Fate of the Furious. One out of three. Uh, I guess that's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. What's happened to cinema? It's interesting because you hear about you know, that, that famous video now of Matt Damon saying how they don't make films anymore that are like mid-budget. Mm. 
I would say this fits into that pocket of mid-budget films. Yeah. Is this is like one of the final mid-budget films of all time? Well, I'm sure there's the odd exception, but like yeah. I feel yeah. like that genre, that type of film has really disappeared. I think those movies are they're, if when they're getting made at all, they're going straight to streaming now. Yeah, like I would say if they exist, start combing through kind of the bigger actors today who occasionally make the odd smaller film, but that's even few and far between. Because mm-hmm. like you look at DiCaprio and pretty much everything he does is like a big release. And he's like one of the few actors who could maybe, maybe get a movie like that made. And even like pure schlock like Red Notice still cost over $100 million to make. Yeah. And straight to streaming. I, I can think of places I'd put it straight in. <laughs> and so i have a couple other final notes on this one uh barry seal's daughter sued universal over this movie claiming that she should have been the guardian of the life rights for barry seal not his third wife and she also uh, really wanted to contest the factual inaccuracies of the film um I-, I suspect that one was quietly paid out because it did not seem like there was any public resolution to that one and we've tackled this issue recently, say, with like Operation Finale, and I think that was kind of settled just off outside the courts, a little handshake there. Yeah. But his whole life, when I was reading about him earlier, Barry Seal's whole life seems to be clouded in, in mistruths. Apparently, he is, he's his biggest promoter, and he would <laughs> often like missell himself to people. So I'm not surprised there are factual inaccuracies in this film. Yeah, it's, it reminds me a little bit of The Irishman. And the character De Niro played, who was also prone to, it seems, um, telling some tales. It, it kind of sounds like th- there was a, a lot more going on with Barry Seal that would have made a much more interesting film. You know, maybe it, maybe it should have been something more like a biopic. Possibly. Of him. Yeah. yeah. And my final note on the movie, and this one kind of made me laugh. Um, it was not nominated for any Oscars or anything like that. Um but it was uh, called out by the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Oh, of which I'm I'm a member. There you go. Maybe you had a hand in this one. I probably did. And I'm going to guess it is because of the age difference between Cruz and uh, Sarah Wright, I think it is, who plays his, his wife. That's right. Yep. She's young enough to be his daughter. She's 21 years younger than him. Um, I was trying to find out. So I know the wife character is a composite of, of um, Barry Seal's three wives. Although, as I did just discover that his third wife, he married in the early 70s. So kind of, he was married to just one woman for the events of this film, but I couldn't find out anything on a quick Google about her age. I mean, it's possible that she was a lot younger than him, but even if that's true, you, when you're doing a composite character, um, you know, we're, I think us women film journalists and women who like film are really tired of seeing uh, couples paired up like this on screen where the guy is way too old genuinely to be married to women like you know a woman this much younger than him yes the actual um title was most egregious age difference between the leading man and the love interest and american made tied with the mummy the other tom cruise movie with his (laughs) romance with annabelle wallace yeah yeah oh we we have this award every year and it's it's never we never lack for multiple nominees (laughs) yeah because it's it's yeah. If, I mean, if it was a one-off, you know, it wouldn't be. It's just every year we see it constantly. Yeah, and it's really annoying. This feels like a common thing with Tom Cruise. Maybe it's changed in more recent years. You know, Jennifer Connelly and Top Gun. But I-, I wondered how much of this was this trying to get across that Tom Cruise is a young man. 
because they yeah. would constantly be trying to communicate that as he stretched through his 50s that oh no this is a very virile young man and it's like well <laughs> yeah i mean i mean to be fair Cruz looks amazing. He doesn't really look his age. So, yeah. you know, the, the movie kind of gets away with it. Yeah, he's playing like late 30s, early 40s in this movie. Yeah, and he pulls it off, to be fair. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there is something to Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you and I need to get over there quick. <laughs> we, we need to check quick. our Satan levels right now. <laughs> We're like the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. We're just like <laughs> turning to dust. <laughs> Maybe Elrond can restore my hairline. That's right. You'll never know. (laughs) Well, I'd like to welcome you all to Spy Hard's Airways. Please fasten your seatbelts and return your tray tables to their upright and locked position. It's time to take off with our review of American Made. And boy, did I stretch out that little story. Let's go with Marianne first. You revisited the film. What do you think of American Made in the year 2023? Um. So I think my reaction um, hasn't really changed much since I saw it five years ago. It's perfectly entertaining film. Cruz is, you know, always better than you think he's going to be. He's always fun to watch. The movie has moments of things that are funny, um, sometimes surprisingly so. There's some some bits of violence and aggression that work out quite amusingly. Um, but yeah, it does make me feel like Goodfellas, but it doesn't quite reach the heights of Goodfellas. Um, uh, my overall problem with it is that I'm just not sure the tone works, given what it's depicting. As I said, one of one of the darker episodes in recent American history um, that maybe needs to be treated a little bit more seriously. Or, or if it's going to be treated ironically and satirically, it, it needs to be way bigger, way more ironic, way broader. So, yeah, I mean, you know, entertaining enough, but I have some, some thematic uh, issues with it. I wonder if you and many people would feel differently if this, you know, story, this real life story had been tackled more in film already, because it felt like this was one of the big, big, like, you know, star driven versions of that sort of Iran-Contra affair story. But there's not a lot of competition. Like you can kind of make the ironic Vietnam War movie because there's so many Vietnam War movies already. But in this case, there's not a lot of competition. That's a really good point. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me before. But you're right. We haven't really seen this tackled head on in pop culture. I mean, probably what it deserves is something like a House of Cards, you know, multiple years of, you know, 10 episodes, because um, it's such a complicated story. And, the, you know, American Made sort of reduces it down to the barest essentials. And even there, like, there's a lot crammed into this plot. There's a lot going on. I would have loved like a, you know, prime era Oliver Stone version of this or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could still we could still get that. But yeah, it needs to I think enough not enough people know really. It's kind of fallen out of the the mainstream consciousness and we don't have anywhere near enough of a a grasp a grasp on what happened and why it was so problematic. Well, it's something I I was going to bring up in my sort of negative sections but i do feel like this story is primed for really digging into and sort of taking apart and putting under a microscope and judging the participants in the story not only just barry seal but um you know u.s government and also all the the contras and everyone like that everyone involved but really this is like the sugary 
you know, doesn't really have anything to it. it there's, it's like empty calories, basically, you're consuming with this film. Mm. Uh, maybe I'll just I'll segue into my quick thoughts because I've yeah. already started speaking. But I really don't like this film. I have to say, I've seen it twice as per. I just can't get a handle on it. I there's things I like to it. There's like a dark humor. It feels like there's like the Cohen brothers wrote odd moments in this film. It reminded me of, you know, Burn After Reading, that sort of spy story. I like that. Mostly the Domino Gleason CIA stuff, and that's where that lives. But in terms of, like, the story, there are no characters that have any depth whatsoever. It really is just, as I said, the sugary veneer of a story that if you try and think about any of it, it doesn't give you a chance. It doesn't tell you anyone's motivations or what anyone thinks or what anyone's sort of sense of wrong and right are they're just doing things tom cruise is reacting and just sort of stumbles his way until he's inevitably killed by the uh, the cartels and you kind of like giggle like oh, giggle that's a bit harsh but you kind of like smugly laugh when he's killed because it's like oh well he's a bad guy they're all taken care of but i i completely forgot about this film twice <laughs> after watching it in two days in a row like i do not remember almost anything walking out of it apart from what's on my notes and i feel like it's a real shame and i want to talk about things like the cinematography that drove me up the wall hmm. which i'll get to but yeah overall i just think there's no substance to this film whatsoever and i think that's a real shame i mean i would slightly disagree about uh when it comes to the motivations of cruz's character i think the film does a good job of setting up in the beginning how bored he is basically being a bus driver in the air um sure. and when you know and he's trying to find a little bit of excitement by like smuggling the cuban cigars and then when the cia comes along this you know this is a chance for a bit of adventure i mean it kind of after that we don't see a lot more um, of his motivation. Um, one character that particularly jumped out at me, I mean, I do generally agree with you as far as the other characters are concerned. Um, uh, the Jesse Plemons character, he's the, um, <laughs> the small town sheriff in Mina. Yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to see more about like, was he being willfully blind to ignore what was happening in this little town? Was he, was he just stupid and, and didn't see what was going on? Or I really wanted to know a lot more about his character and why he was so oblivious seemingly to what was going on in his in his town especially there was that one scene where there's a uh, i can't remember if it was a, if it was a cia or an fbi guy or um it's, a, it's another federal agent who comes to the town and and just looks around at all clearly all the money that's going around there's like multiple banks on the one little main street and people driving fancy sports cars and things he instantly sees something's not right here so what was up with the cop I almost don't know why the cop character was there. For the most part, yeah, I do agree with you as far as, far as motivations goes. Like, why why did anybody do what they did? Well, you look at something like uh, Ozark, that really wonderful Netflix series that I recommend everyone watch. It's wonderful stuff. And that deals with, like, the small town in America that's overtaken by the cartels and drugs. And it deals with the sheriff's department being bribed and and also the inner conflict of the sheriff should he step up and do his job or should he just take the money and looking away all that sort of stuff i mean you could imprint that on jesse Plemons' character but the film doesn't do it for you no yeah. it's funny scott you and i have now tackled two movies where jesse Plemons pops up in these tiny little roles and you're like is that all he does because bridge of spies of course he was also uh the main pilot's sort of friend who showed up a couple times and yeah, that was the case here. I thought it was kind of distracting because you're like, well, he's going to do more, right? No? 
Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't want to interrogate the title change too much because it is what it is. But, like, if the movie's called Mina, I would feel like it would have to have a little more depth into what was going on in Mina. Whereas here, it's really just kind of like a, a background to the Tom Cruise story. It's not something they're exploring at all. So if I'd gone to see a movie called Mina and they're showcasing all of these sort of, you know, criminal undergoings in Mina, I'd expect it to have a little more substance. Yeah. I mean, what about all the other people in town? Did they notice anything weird going on? Or were, were they all happy that somebody was splashing money around? I don't think the film wants you to ask. I think it, it yeah. really is just that sort of veneer of a story. It's, it's all about Tom Cruise, which I think is one of the reasons Tom Cruise is doing this film. I'm coming across like I don't like Tom Cruise today. <laughs> uh, Scott, you mentioning Ozark makes me think of the uh, Timothy Oliphant series, Justified, where he plays a mm -hmm. sheriff in Appalachia dealing with criminals and organized crime, which is, again, really delved into um, the motivations of people. And, of course, yeah. but we're talking... the morality of the police department. Exactly. And, and, yeah. But we're also talking about, you know, sprawling series that have time to do that, which is, yeah, this story really needs that. I'll get into my thoughts, but I do wonder if at the time, I, I didn't go and reread uh, a lot of reviews from the time, but I wonder if there would be people citing Breaking Bad at the time being like, this should have been an extended story, which kind of delved into this character versus this two hour kind of superficial, you know, not even biopic, but just sort of riff on this real life event. I think we're, I think we're all getting spoiled by all this prestige TV, which is doing such amazing jobs with exploring character and, you know, complicated motivations and all. And we're just, we're not seeing that on, on the screen anymore. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, uh, and, and Cam, I'll, I'll just throw back to you a second. No, no. Thoughts. I'm sorry, I'm jumping in, but just to sort of look at that for a second, much as this could be done in a, in a prestige TV show, this story could be told in a film successfully. The problem is they've blown this story out of proportion so much and just, they've added all these things that Barry Seal has done that plods out a, a whole hour of the film. It didn't happen in reality. If they just focus on the reality of the man, which is also very fascinating if you look at it, you could have then weaved in the other hours worth of the morality of the police or the sort of the, the lack of morality of the choices of the CIA. But they don't. Yeah, and so like my thoughts on the movie, I enjoyed the movie re-watching it, but I don't think I quite liked it as much as the first time. Um, and I think that had to do with it wants to be Goodfellas. It's all over the movie. Like, they are constantly kind of hammering that nail on the head. But there's a propulsiveness to Goodfellas that I don't think this movie quite has. And I was trying to, ex like, really ponder why it is. Because, you know, you have a committed star. Um, they obviously, if Tom Cruise is your producer, which he does for all of his movies, you have a certain amount of control. Like, you're not going to have a lot of, you know, studio mucking about with your, you know, film along the way and I, I wonder if it's almost like the Tom Cruise casting is in a way a problem because Tom Cruise is a movie star one of the last few movie stars that exists but Tom Cruise doesn't like to come across as too you know gritty on screen like there's a certain control he has over his productions and I really began to wonder at a certain point if like this movie couldn't quite go as maybe dark and complicated as it potentially could because Tom Cruise isn't going to be comfortable being the star of a movie like that and also a Barry Seal you're not going to dig into his darker impulses and kind of stranger elements because again like that's not the way Tom Cruise wants to project himself on screen and so there's like kind of this impenetrable nature to the character where you get that kind of bored hotshot 
you know, kind of attitude, which Tom Cruise is famous for playing these kind of, you know, intense hotshot characters. And he would be my nightmare to have a uh, airline pilot who's just deciding to like dive the plane just to wake me up. That would be terrifying as someone who does not like flying in the first place. But it's like elements of that feel a little safe. But even like this movie has some, you know, sex scenes and things like that. But you look at how the, quickly they're done. Like they don't want to linger on anything too much. It's that kind of cleaner look at Tom Cruise, albeit in a kind of darker movie for him. But I do wonder if, like, if you'd had, say, like, a more, like, chameleon-like character actor in the role, what you would have gotten. Hmm. You'll also note that all those sex scenes you mentioned are filmed that you can't see Tom Cruise. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I want to get back to the sex scenes at some point because there's a, there's, a, there's a funny little bit there that I want to talk about. But let's, let's examine the things that we liked before we dig into the things that we didn't like. Marianne, we'll have you up first. Give us something about the film that you really enjoyed. Um, oh, okay. That is, uh, I did like the flying scenes. The, um, the, the, the plane chases are not something that we see very often on screen. Uh, I thought they were shot really dynamically. Um, we get a real sense of, um, you know, unlike a car chase, it's on two planes uh, or, you know, two dimensions. This is in three. Um, and those worked really well i thought and i haven't really seen anything like that before mm -hmm. yeah like there's a sort of tactile very practical nature to these flying scenes that i mean even in 2017 not something that was that common you know cg typically <laughs> that they have a certain glossy superficial look in these movies and all of the yeah. flying stuff i thought was fantastic even like the way they would kind of show the strategy of what they were doing, how they were pulling off these crimes. And if we slow down, then the uh, these, you know, federal planes are going to run out of gas and have to leave. Like all these various strategies they had and the way they showcase it on screen, really fun to watch. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the whole, um, we can fly slow. I mean, that's brilliant. I, I don't know that much about planes and that's not something that had ever occurred to me before. And I thought that was very clever. It's clearly come from someone who knows aircraft. Mm -hmm. And I imagine the synergy with Tom Cruise helped there a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if Tom had suggested a couple of things. But the slow-flying aircraft is actually from the Barry Seal story. That, I mean, and he was a prodigy when it came to flying as well, Barry Seal. Right. But, I mean, that's that's not something I, don't, I can't recall ever seeing depicted on screen before. So if we're mm -hmm. talking just about, you know, cinema. Yeah. No, sure. No, yeah. I, I completely agree. I think it's, uh, it's wonderfully shot. And you can tell... Everything's practical, mm -hmm. which is nice. In that sense, it's sort of a nice through line from this to Top Gun Maverick, really, where they turned that up to 11. Yeah, and I love, like, the first takeoff from the, uh, you know, Columbian Air, um, you know, a a tarmac there, where it's just like, that's a really intense sequence. And Yeah, the, the plane is too heavy, the runway is too short. It's very gripping. Yeah, it's like elements like that, to me, make this movie a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. What about you, Cam? Something you liked? Um, I think for me, what I like is that there's a certain like energy this movie has that really works for me. And it's like, it doesn't have the propulsiveness of Goodfellas, but it's a movie that is very digestible. It's a movie that maybe doesn't leave you fully satisfied, but like the way that Doug Lyman keeps it lively, you know, consistently has, you know, like pop-ins of graphics and Barry Seal narrating things, but in a way that feels a little more energetic. Like this movie could have been you know, in different hands, maybe a little more staid, a little more slow moving. But I think like he does as much as he can to keep this movie feeling lively. 
And so I really appreciated that. And even like we talked about how there are a lot of characters that don't have a lot going for them. Um, but I did like the injection of like a character like JB played by Caleb Landry Jones, who is just this classic fly in the ointment character. And I think Caleb Landry Jones is an incredibly fun character actor. I always appreciate him whenever he shows up. He was, you know, great in Get Out, for example. And just the uh, the contrast of him and Barry Seal, to me, like that brought the movie to life for like a number of scenes. I'm like, I like watching these two people bounce off each other. I wish they'd had more characters like that, but that's an example of kind of a way that Doug Lyman kind of gooses the audience, uh, the audience to kind of keep paying attention. Yeah, I agree that the film has a sort of light popcorn feel to it. It's, uh, you know, sort of tastes great, less filling. It's not super memorable. And I, I didn't remember too much about it until I rewatched it again. Um, but yeah, but it's, you know, diverting. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I like the JB turning up. I think that's sort of fun to watch. I would like to know more about JB and why he's such an, uh, an F up and stuff. But I think maybe, maybe Marianne, you're right. Maybe that is a prestige TV sort of thing. Maybe we're not supposed to have that in a film. That's totally fine. It's that classic fictional character thing where they don't want to go too in-depth because then they're worried it's going to trick people into thinking this was real. And so the fact that this character is blown up in a car bomb and never acknowledged in a scene, you know, with his sister is really weird. Mm. But they're like, they're almost scared of, I think, complicating, uh, you know, the wife character with that. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree there. I, but I did like uh, the use of the car bomb mm-hmm. in the sense I didn't see it coming. I was completely surprised by that. And then I like that that go, comes back again when Tom Cruise is on sort of probation and it, he first starts a car up as he comes out of the courthouse and he sort of starts it up slowly and he's telling people to stay away from his car just in case it blows up. It, there's like a tiny little bit of a human in there, which I, I quite like seeing. So that was a nice thread that they wove throughout. There is some genuine tension in this movie. Like Doug Lyman is a good filmmaker. Um, he's He's a... Very, like, capable um, studio filmmaker, I feel like. You know, if you gave this movie to, like, more of an edgy sort of independent director, I'd be curious what you would get. But with um, Doug Lyman, I think, like, he finds ways to generate suspense uh, very well. Like, that, yeah, as you said, like, setting up the car bomb and then having that scene of Barry, you know, turning the key slowly, the plane takeoff from earlier in the movie. There's enough sequences like that that I very much appreciate having a Doug Lyman at the helm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing I wanted to call out, I mentioned it up front, was sort of the dark humor that I appreciated about this film. The dysfunctionality of the, the CIA it just reminded me a lot of, let's be honest, a film that was better written, which was Burn After Reading by the Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, That's a better example of this, but it's fun to see that given a more historical contextualization as opposed to Burn After Reading, which is completely made up stuff. Um. And like just some of the craziness that more or less happened with this uh, Contra affair and all the drug smuggling that happened in the 80s. A lot of these things that happened with Barry Steele just stumbling into the cartel and it working out. It's kind of funny in its own little way. And I enjoyed sort of seeing that and seeing him just sort of skirt by without consequence for a very long time. That was that was fun. Mm hmm. Another movie that I would like to revisit, I think we're going to do it on the show at some point. It has CIA ties to it, which is Charlie Wilson's War. And to see like the way that they handle the tone of that kind of real story, which has definitely a comedic edge to it like this movie, but I think was maybe a little more successful at balancing the two kind of elements. 
Well, yeah, I, I, you know, Domhnall Gleeson's character is really not given anything beyond being a bit of a busybody at work and, and really effing up, you find out more or less by the end, but then just getting away with it. He's really fun in this movie, though. He is mm. re- like, I really like his performance, but it is that uh, similar to JB. It's that um, invented character syndrome where it's like they give him fun moments, but they don't want to delve too much into him because then people start asking questions. Yeah. And I think the only thing I would like to bring up as well in terms of likes, and you can disagree with me, folks, on this one. Absolutely. But I, I think Tom Cruise is good in this. Yeah. I, I think he, he can play charming exceedingly well. Absolutely. And that's. That's what the character is called for on the page. He is a charming lead. He is basically the only character in this film, but he is charming when he's there. Absolutely. It's why I'm kind of conflicted, because I'm saying that like I would like to see sort of what uh, maybe you know edgier, independent film kind of actor would do with this type of character. But at the same time, for this movie to be in its current form, you need kind of like a Tom Cruise to carry it on his shoulders. Like... I just wish it was maybe an actor who was a little less controlled. But in terms of Tom Cruise performances, this is one of his more interesting, I think, you know, acting turns of quite a while. Like, I love him in, you know, Top Gun Maverick and several of these other movies. Edge of Tomorrow is fantastic. But, like, they're not kind of demanding of him what this role is. And I wish he would do more things like this. It's kind of like, you know, after he did, like, Magnolia and Collateral and films like that, you were like, oh, man, what is this guy going to do? Eyes Wide Shut, another example. You know, he could really work with great directors and they could kind of take from him what he does best and kind of get him to push himself a little further. A role like this does that. I wish he would do it again. Yeah, I don't think we've really seen much since this. No, I know he was like talking to Tarantino about playing the Brad Pitt character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, it just never really went anywhere. But uh, it it just seems like Tom Cruise likes working with directors he's comfortable with. He's worked with Doug Liman a couple times. Um, you know, Macquarie. He's done several things with. He doesn't like to kind of. I don't know. I feel like these days hand himself over to real visionary directors. But these are these like stoic, monolithic characters like Ethan Hunt that they are. Mm-hmm. They have no faults to them, basically. Uh, I, that's what I like about Barry is he is a very weird guy. Although <laughs> I, 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 I just think in my head now, if Tom Cruise had been in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, would that meme of of the chap jump uh, like clicking and saying, "Oh, I know that reference." Uh, would it be Tom Cruise jumping on the sofa and then pointing at the screen? <laughs> oh, probably, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, make that happen, Internet. Make that happen. <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, We're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Spy Kids may be in our rearview mirror, but we're going to look at another Robert Rodriguez franchise starring Antonio Banderas. How about 1995's Desperado? Let's play. And if that sounds 
delicious. Then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, let's uh, let's grab our burn bags and chuck it all in. Things we <laughs> didn't like. Uh, Marianne, you're up first. Give me something you didn't like. Uh, well, I mentioned already the fact that the woman who plays his wife is young enough to be his daughter. That really gets mm-hmm. at me. Uh, I also really hate the lazy cinematography of the yellow tinge whenever anything is in Central or South America. That has yeah. just become ridiculous shorthand for not just hot, but also like a bit corruption and the sort of seething nastiness and that's really really lazy and that really drives me crazy so i hate that i i I will jump on the pylon because that's my number one (laughs) dislike with a bullet is the cinematography from this film not just that like the coloration of the film or colorization i think is the word but also just like the different types of filming there's like all these weird Dutch angles. I thought I was back in the Ipcus <laughs> file. I was getting a migraine watching the film. And it's like snapping back and forth between this like found footage. It's like a sitcom talking head sort of thing where he's doing little little videos, which you find out why he's doing it by the end of the film. It does make sense in the narrative. But all these like jaunty camera angles and weird zooms and like handheld switch to like wide shots. It, maybe it's meant to discombobulate you and that's the, that's the gimmick sure it just gave me a headache it's very intentional like i'm sure doug lyman i think you know if you want to make this kind of propulsive movie which seems to be what he's going for because right off the bat where you have like the universal logo and then that like record scratch and like the disco music kicks in it's like he wants to make this kind of irreverent propulsive movie and i think that handheld stuff was a big part of what the intention was there i made a note early on like really early probably like the first you know five six minutes i was like does this movie look good question mark and then further down the page this movie does not look good exclamation mark (laughs) it is i mean it it's ugly but yeah i think you're right that's probably part of the intention but whether that actually works or not is uh, i'm not sure because i think initially he was kind of going for this kind of washed out look to you know all the actors and everything kind of I think to kind of get back in that sort of 1978 drama mode, like he wants it to look maybe like a 1970s film or something. Mm. But at a certain point, I'm looking at this like eye burning yellows on screen, like when like the yellow plane or whatever is on screen. I'm just like, holy smokes, like he's had this incredibly vibrant color going through the movie mixed with this very washed out look of all the actors and everything. It is distinct, but it's very ugly. Like Mm. a lot of it just. Someone I saw a review, I think it was Sean Fennessy from the Big Picture Show, uh, just said this movie looks like it was shot on an iPhone. Huh. I could I could believe that. It would explain the angles. Mm. Yeah. It it just, to me, smacks of someone who's trying to like show off, which maybe that's not the case. But for me personally, as someone who's not that sort of au fait with cinema, this is just how I read it and I interpret it. It just seems like smugness. Oh, look, I'm going to do a funny angle of these two people talking. I'm not saying I want just a flat wide shot every single time, but the fact that the cinematography angered me so much in this film, and this is the second time in this film's history, sorry, in this podcast history where the cinematography has angered me to the point of it being a dislike, has to mean something. What was the other one? The Ipcris file. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> you don't shoot a fight scene for a phone box. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I feel like when you see Scorsese use all of his techniques in something like Goodfellas, it is entirely one of a piece with the picture. Like, it just all works as a whole. Whereas I feel like Doug Liman, a lot of the, you know, the cinematography in this movie is trying to create this kind of total package visually of what this movie is, but it's more distracting. I don't get distracted when I see other visual stylists, you know, try for things like this and pull it off. Yeah. Well, you look at like Bourne Identity, that, that, that sort of invented the, the Bourne shooting style that was, of course, evolved in the next the, the Paul Greengrass film that came afterwards. But a lot of that the sort of DNA can be found in the Bourne Identity. But it served the purpose of Matt Damon's Jason Bourne. It's about propulsive, intense, visceral fighting. And it's this guy scrapping and clawing for his life. That made sense. This, I don't know what, like, shooting Tom Cruise leaning underneath an airplane from the other side of the airplane at a funny angle has anything to do with a drug runner. And also, like, the Barry character, he's not portrayed as being, like, out of control or aware that he's out of control and in a lot of trouble. Like, he's always kind of this very cool customer through a lot of the movie, even when things are just chaotic all around him. He never seems to really be coming unraveled. And I think, like, maybe that approach would work more if that was the case with the character. I could get that. Wasn't Whiplash kind of shot that way towards the end? Like, it's a bit frenetic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. That's in the back of my mind. Uh, well, clearly we're in Sapatico with this one, Marianne. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll throw to Cam for one of his. Yeah, I mean, we briefly mentioned it earlier, but or uh, Marianne did, which was um, characters like you know, Sarah Wright's Lucy Seal character. This is, to me, a character that it's kind of unforgivable if you're going to go, you know, very glossy with it. There's some characters like the Jesse Plemons thing. It's kind of like annoying. You'd like to see more of them, but it doesn't really disrupt the movie that much. I have absolutely no idea what the wife character is thinking in almost a single scene of this movie. It's so just like one dimensional and it feels like a problem that was going on not just in all of, you know, Hollywood for a long, long time in film, but like in Tom Cruise films in particular, where he would very much take the leadership role. And that was not the case at Edge of Tomorrow, which is why I think Emily Blunt got so rightfully, you know, highlighted as probably the best part of that movie. But here it's Tom Cruise working with a younger actress who is not a name and so does not have that sort of power on the set. And to me, it just, I think I've said this on the show before, but if you underwrite one of your characters, one of your lead characters, your movie is not better. It actually makes your movie worse. And I think that's the case here. I would love to know more of what this character was thinking as her husband is bouncing all over the globe on drug missions and money is just coming out of every, you know, hole in the in the house. Yep. Well, she, yeah, she gets a moment when they get moved to that new location. She's like, look, You've moved me. You've uprooted me. I need a fridge. I need a washer. I've got. We've got kids here, man. You've got to take care of this. You're the breadwinner. And she actually gets to show a little bit of passion and, and sort of what her internal story is for all of a second. And But the film completely forgets about her and you just get like montages mm-hmm. and, uh, okay, her having zero G sex. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great, I guess. Apparently that was, uh, I have a, a, a factoid about that scene, if you'd like to hear it. I'm sure Cam's read this already. Yes, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so that whole slow-mo, low-gravity sex scene came came from came <laughs> from uh, a flight between Tom Cruise and Doug Lyman, where there was some turbulence, and they bumped into each other as it sort of, the, the gravity shook as there was some turbulence. So 
for some reason, rubbing shoulders with Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise gave uh, gave them gave him an idea for a scene. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you. Yeah. Folks. I made a note, though. It's like, what are the marriage dynamics? Because, you know, Scott, you were saying this movie felt very kind of sugary and synthetic to you when it was over. But I do think delving into a little more of that human drama would only make the movie better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Marianne, because there's two blokes talking about a woman not having a voice. <laughs> Tell us, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it didn't really jump out at me because this is unfortunately all too common with these sorts of films. Um, but, you know, we were talking a lot about Goodfellas, and clearly that's a template for this film. We learn a lot about um, Henry's wife and her, her complicity in his crimes, and that makes Goodfellas much stronger, makes her a much more interesting character. We get nothing like that here. Obviously, the Lucy character likes having the money, but that's not exactly characterization. Uh, I would have loved to know more about her, but again, you know, where do you fit that in? In here, um, it, it's it is a somewhat underwritten film. There's a point where he says to her, "Like, do you trust me?" And she goes, "No." And I was yeah. just like, "Tell us more about this." Yeah. Like, has that always been the case? Like, what's going on? Yeah. I mean, the, the film doesn't mention the fact that you know he's been married twice before, but you know that could be. Uh, a rocky beginning or foundation for a relationship when you know that your husband is, you know, obviously had problems with women before. But yeah, but the, the film just completely ignores that, which is a shame. I mean, what about and the kids too? I mean, you know, he's a he's got kids. Does he worry about what's going to happen to the kids? Or the kids are almost non-existent characters as well, and they could be slightly more uh, present in the film, and they're not. I even wondered, and I made a note about this, but like Tom Cruise's personal life has been made very public over the years. And did he want to be playing a character who has this, you know, string of ex-wives and things like that? Because there'd been that very public breakup with Katie Holmes and things like that. And it's like, if you're a producer on the project and you're very controlling of your movie star persona, is that even something you want to invite in? Maybe not. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. Possible. But surely most people would go out of their way to learn a little bit about the story or would have some built-in knowledge, especially North Americans, I would imagine. About Barry Seal? I don't know. Is Barry Seal a, not a household name necessarily, but like, is that a story that comes up from time to time? I, no. I'd never heard of him before this film at all. Yeah. You know, I had the vague outlines of the whole Iran-Contra thing, but yeah, no, really. I don't, I don't think most Americans would... No, would clue too much into what's going on in this film except in the much larger context and even then like we were talking about before there's not been a lot of uh pop culture focus on the whole iran contra thing so i'm not sure that m most people today and even so that was in back in the 80s um would most people today have much of a grounding in it i, I doubt it actually i had a couple of other sort of downsides dislikes as it were i mean but we sort of mentioned them off the top i don't think the film takes any of the characters choices to task it doesn't really deal with any of the moralities of anyone doing anything these drug cartels are played off as sort of fun his tom cruise is played off as a, a very fun drug dealer but you can there is definitely you can draw a path all the way to the thousands and thousands of deaths that have come from the cocaine that his person his character imported into the country there's a there's a dark side to the story, but this film won't tell you that. 
and 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 like the lack of sort of psychology of the characters, especially Sarah Wright's Lucy Seal, the wife character, I think is a real detriment to the film. And I actually kind of got a little bit bored with the aviation porn as the film went on. Oh, okay. Personally, I I get it. Um, I think Top Gun does it better, but that's really what Top Gun's there to do. It's basically just aviation porn and Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle, if you're into that. (laughs) But yeah, that wasn't really for me. But was there any other uh, sort of downsides for anyone? I don't know that it's a downside for me, but like everything to do with like the cartel that he was meeting with and, you know, the the main one, uh, Jorge, played by Alejandro Eda. And of course, you had Pablo Escobar. It's like elements like that. It kind of wants to put them up front and invite you into the movie, but it doesn't want to dig any deeper on them. And those, again, were characters that I was like, what's going on with them? Like, I'd like to know more because Pablo Escobar, of course, is very well known. But the movie's not really that interested. So I, there was a scene where there, he's on the compound and, like, the um, police and military start um, breaking into the compound. And just the way that, like, I think it was Pablo Escobar is just like, eh, no big deal when they see them out the window. Like, stuff like that was fun. But it doesn't want to dig into them as characters at all. And I think it's because, again, Barry Seal didn't really meet them. Uh, I think he met them, like, way later in his journey. And so it's they're inventing scenes, but they don't want to dig deep because then, again, question marks. Well, the other side of that, and this is a question for you both. Does this film suffer from the fact that the lead is Tom Cruise? The film is all about Tom Cruise. It's all about his character, Barry Seal. But... If it wasn't Tom Cruise, would we have had more time for other people? It's very possible. I, well, that's why I said, like, I think if, you know, you cast, I'm just going to throw out a name randomly, Tom Hardy in this role, he's not going to be, um, you know, kind of like looming over this movie in the same way. Um, so, yeah, it's entirely possible that that would be the case. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, there's clearly some downsides to this film. Although Donald Gleason is not one of them. That no, he's great. Handsome. He's great. He's I great. would love to see a he's whole great. movie just about him playing a character like this. Uh, yeah. That could be so much fun. He's so snaky in this movie. And he has that sort of, um, you know, incredibly bright kid, I'm sure, out of a university somewhere who has that sort of, that almost like, um, you know, social network Zuckerberg edge or something. Like, he's someone who has no moral real code whatsoever and it's just kind of playing fast and loose and i like that in this movie he's a kind of a fun character to throw into the movie because he does feel like the type that really could mix things up like who the f is schaefer <laughs> i'd like to see him in a coen brothers movie how is that not something happened? like burn after reading i don't know that's we need to make it happen you never know you never know <laughs> well before we go to the knock list let's just clear up any final notes i have one sort of notes last question but uh, marianne have you got any other notes left um i think i've pretty much covered it yeah it's you know fairly diverting entertaining film but ultimately forgettable and and minor a minor film my even minor tom cruise does this one stand out for you even in that time period of tom cruise no no. <laughs> it does not. Yeah. <laughs> you're I mean you're right that this is a different sort of character for him. Um and he does, you know, give a good performance, but the the rest of the film doesn't really hold up. Well, I mean, Cam, what else was Tom Cruise doing around this time? Well, yeah, I'll just go through like the 2010s because it kind of leads into the journey here. So like he kicks off that uh, decade with Night and Day. He does Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Jack Reacher, Oblivion, 
Edge of Tomorrow, Rogue Nation, Jack Reacher 2, uh, The Mummy, and then American Made comes out. So it's kind of like that um, I'm the world's biggest movie star, but I'm uncertain as to what the audiences want because the franchise stuff is doing fairly well. But like Oblivion, even like Jack Reacher 2, these were not successful films particularly. And so it felt like he was trying to find his place. And I think it's very telling that, you know, post-American made, he's only made two movies that have, you know, hit theaters. And that's uh, Mission Impossible Fallout and Maverick. Uh, Rest in peace, dark universe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true, true. So it's like um, he has stuck very closely to these tried and true franchises that have been very successful for him. Yeah, there's nothing sort of curveball about any of those films particularly. Even like going back to the early 2010s, like even Night and Day really feels like it's in his wheelhouse. Yeah, and what does he have coming up, Scott? Mission Impossible <laughs> 7 and 8. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has is, is, is he got like a certain amount of films and he's done like Quentin Tarantino? He's an interesting one because a lot of actors, you know, like whatever, like Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, like whoever they're going to age into playing older roles and I think do them quite well. Whereas Tom Cruise is very clearly trying to milk whatever he has left time-wise with action films, like movies where he can do these huge stunts. And like, what is a 65 or 70-year-old Tom Cruise? Is he like wanting to play the kind of character roles that, you know, one of his mentors, Paul Newman, was doing? I don't, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what he does. That's a very insightful, um, the whole, yeah, he's dragging out the action hero thing for as long as he possibly can. And he's he may be starting to bump, bump up against uh, the edge of that. Is there really much room left for him to go? I kind of, I, of all those movies that you mentioned, the one that really jumps out for me is Edge of Tomorrow, which is just a brilliant film. But I also like the fact that he's almost sort of playing with that action hero thing. You know, his, the character in that is a coward. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really reluctant to get into the action stuff and, and is not the instigator of it. You know, he's, he's following someone else's lead. Um, but yeah, where, where else can, can he go? Dead reckoning. <laughs> Unless he completely reimagines himself. Yeah. Well, I, I have a feeling something uh, very final might happen in one of those two films. We'll see. Yeah, I think... He might, he might meet, meet a mission that is... Truly impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I think when you're Tom Cruise, you're used to success. And uh, the way they measure success in, you know, the film world now is like billion dollar grosses. And so is he comfortable backing away from that? He's used to all through his career being like one of the biggest profit earners there are. Are we going to get Cocktail (laughs) 2? No, there's a very dark chapter in the 80s as well, Scott. (laughs) Don't take me back there. (laughs) Mm, indeed. Uh, Cam, did you have any final notes? I didn't have many. Um, I did like the um, needle drops in this movie. I thought they were fun. Kind of these uh, disco versions of like classical music. I thought they added a fair amount of energy in the way they would go back to those time and time again. Um, disco versions of the classical music. That was a thing at the time called, it was Hooked on Classics. That was a huge hit. That was very, very 80s. <laughs> There was the one, the Beethoven one on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Was that a trend before that movie? Uh, not that I, not that I recall. That may have actually kicked off the trend, mm, okay. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that there was like the famous Star Wars disco version 
there was the uh, Moonraker one in the credits of Moonraker. And I was actually just last night watching the Spielberg HBO documentary from a few years ago. I think it was actually the same year as this movie, actually. And they played a Jaws disco version. So uh, it was a fun trend. And I think this movie (laughs) enjoys playing around with it. Yeah. When you said record scratch, I thought I went like um, very safe by the bell in my head. Mm. Like uh, I, I could definitely see Tom Cruise's Barry Seal just like going time out, <laughs> record scratch, <laughs> and then just saying, "You may be wondering how I got here, <laughs> delivering drugs for the Colombian cartel." <laughs> well, let me tell you. And I had a question for you, Scott. Um, there's a point. There's a point in this movie where it shows you know Barry Seal is filming all these testimonials of himself, and then has a box of VHS tapes. Were you sitting there going, those aren't beta tapes? Oh, uh, uh, calling it back. Calling yeah, it back. okay. Okay, Cam. If you want to just keep bringing up your idiocy, that's fine. <laughs> Always will. Hmm. Uh, I had one final question about the film before we get to the big question. And Marianne, I, I want your opinion on this, but it is quite a pure R question. So if you want to abstain <laughs> for our juvenile humor, I completely <laughs> okay. understand. But we've experienced a couple of films now where our protagonist has uh, relations in low gravity. Let's say it that way. And there's a couple more we haven't talked about yet, especially Moonraker. Yeah. But uh, of the ones of the ones out there that we can remember, what's the best zero gravity, low gravity lovemaking scene? Let's put it politely. I don't know. What are some of the other ones? Yeah. I've actually never seen Moonraker. Oh, Moonraker is really? uh... the big uh, the big one. Um, uh, you've also got uh, in like Flint at the end of that where he's coming back to the planet Earth with the uh, cosmonauts two cosmonauts he has two ladies on the go uh, attempting (laughs) re-entry and there is another one that we've tackled in the last couple of years that is escaping me but there was another low gravity sex scene I would say if I'm to pick it has to be Moonraker like that one commits to the bit and has some really funny jokes that they throw in there, some double entendres. They they own it. This movie doesn't. Like, this movie plays it very, like, music video-like. Yeah. It does give it some slow-mo, though. It does. I, I, don't, have, I don't have enough um, grasp on the other uh, such examples to really even answer the question. <laughs> I, I'm glad you're willing to engage. I am willing to engage, <laughs> but I just, yeah, I just don't. I don't have the the context for it. Um, I will say that the the slow mo anti gravity sex scene in this film is not very sexy or very interesting. So. No, yeah, no, <laughs> not particularly. I, uh, I I I almost feel bad for Sarah Wright really in this one, but there you go. That's another thing, actually. You cast a different actor. I think those you know the sex scene montage and things like that would play very differently. Like again, I don't think Tom Cruise is willing to. Well, yeah, if you put Vin Diesel in there, it's going to play very differently. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well how have we not had one in fast uh they did go to space but um yeah. yeah like i just think like tom cruise is not going to uh allow himself to be shown in these very sexual uh situations for any sort of prolonged amount of time no no i think you're right i, I think I'll, I'll i'll stop the pure old humor now and I'll, <laughs> I'll bring it to something far more serious and our mission statement on this show is American Made one of the greatest spy films of all time? Is it going on the knock list? Marianne, you're up first. Yes or no? No. Uh, I, I would even question whether we should really categorize it as, categorize it as a spy film. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a little bit of the, the CIA stuff, but even most of that 
doesn't really have much to do with being a spy. Like, I, I would feel like, yeah, I wouldn't call this a spy film. Well, that's an excellent point you brought up that we probably should have brought up in the body of the review, which is that, like, <laughs> all of the CIA stuff was invented. And so, mm -hmm. like, can this be considered even something with spy connections? Well, even if it wasn't invented, uh, the only stuff I would really char characterize as sort of spy-like was early on in the film where he is um, using the plane to take pictures mm -hmm. um, of the Sensen or of the whoever he's taking pictures of. Um, beyond that, it's not really spy stuff. And I feel like the film sort of lacks um, a lot of what you might want in a spy film. You know, the tension here is not the spy stuff. There's nothing spy-like. It's The tension is in the action and, you know, the plane taking off and um, those, those um, in-air uh, chases. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would call this a spy film at all, actually. Sorry. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's fair. I think one of the things we do on the show is there's films that are on the cusp of being a spy film that are like they have elements that resonate with spy films and we will still tackle them. Sure. And if we decide they're not the best spy movies of all time or they're not even spy movies, that's entirely fine. Yeah. It's, it's about having that discussion uh, and, I, and I'm glad we're having it. I think there are elements here. Like I think, like the, as you say, the sort of taking photographs, sort of like Gary Powers in Bridge of Spies, that, that's got that mm. thing. Uh, but then Bridge of Spies has a much heavier element with Tom Hanks that is, again, all about spycraft. I mean, I think some of the CIA stuff probably counts as well, but this is definitely on the sort of outside of like on the on the, the precipice of the bubble like it's it's not really in there it's got maybe one foot in the spy realm and and the rest of tom cruise's body is floating just above it in zero gravity and i wonder too if the movie delved more into the cia and you know all the th all the uh, the depth of the iran contra affair you might consider it a little more but by making it mm -hmm. this tom cruise vehicle and making it this berry seal kind of uh you know edge of the seat of your pants kind of thriller it, it removes those elements and kind of you're not going to consider it as strongly as some other things well i posted about this online on social media and, and, and a lot of people did sort of talk about it in that sort of spy and, and didn't really question us watching it so i think people want to hear us talk about it so i think that's entirely mm -hmm. plausible that we're here and we haven't just invalidated the last 80 minutes <laughs> <laughs> so we're okay everyone don't worry but that's a no <laughs> from you marianne in terms of it being one of the best spy films uh, yes that's a no that's an emphatic no. Okay. Uh, it could still happen, though. You never know. Cam could surprise us with a real swing vote here. Uh, what have you got? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, even if the, I think, the um, CIA or spy elements were a little stronger, I don't think this movie would make it for me. It's It's a little too glossy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the problem for me in that... I can watch it, you know, last night, I it was painless to rewatch. Scott, you and I have, you know, rewatched movies we've seen long in the past for this show where we weren't looking forward to going back. I was dreading going back to watch Taken 2, for example. But, like, this movie was entirely painless, partly because I'd forgotten almost everything that happened in it <laughs> since the first time. But uh, for me, it's just, like, the kind of movie that I think people could throw on they would enjoy it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that was a fun Tom Cruise movie. There was a little bit of not substance, but at least elements that are things that I hadn't really you know, seen or heard from in movies before. But you're probably not going to remember it so strongly later down the road. So for me, you know, it's kind of one of those like B minus studio films, but, you know, not knockless material. 
Okay. Well, that's two no's, so whatever I say means nothing. Great. <laughs> it, I'm not going to belabor the point. It's a no from me too. I think you could all telegraph that. I probably liked it the least out of the three of us altogether speaking. It's interesting that I spilt coffee on my notes and ruined a whole page of notes, and yet I don't feel like I lost anything. <laughs> uh, as Cam said, as I said off the top, it's a it's a sugary, empty film. I think there is a better film inside of this story, and I hope that we do get it one day. It's just a shame that this is the package it was delivered in. This is very much a a leftover of the Christmas confectionery that we are just trying to eat to get out of the way so we can get back to eating salads again. <laughs> wow. Very flowery, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good today. Uh, I drank more of that coffee that I spilled on the notes. <laughs> but there you go, folks. Three no's. American made is not made for the knock list. Uh, I want to say thank you to Marianne for once again stepping into the breach. A different vibe to this film this time from the last time. I, I'm, I'm glad we're giving you like a range on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me back. It's been a lot of fun. No, uh, absolute pleasure. I, I know you said off sort of the top that you've uh, not been doing too much with sort of the Flick Philosopher website and such recently, but you're looking to kick that back into Drive in the new year. So what are your sort of things you're looking forward to try and do? starting this year? Um, I think I want to focus a bit more on some classic films. Um, I'm sort of getting a bit tired of the sort of hamster wheel of constant um, new releases. And it's also getting really, it used to be easy to sort of track that, you know, there's so many films being released, um, but you could always sort of narrow it down by saying, okay, this is what's opening in cinema this week. But now really big and important stuff is opening in streaming as well. And I'm sort of overwhelmed, like I'm paralyzed by choice. Like I don't even know where to start covering films these days. So I'm trying to figure out a way to, to sort of a, a new way to narrow that down. Um, and it, part of that may be just not looking at as many new films, um, or at least not to review, um, and focusing more on, I have a really long list of classic films that I've never seen before. So I feel like I want to, I want to sort of expand my film education a bit and look at some of those films and look at them, you know, some of them are quite old and look at them now from a, a modern perspective and see how they play. So like Moonraker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's that's one of the things on my list. I also want to do, I'd love to do a whole big series of looking at science fiction films in the 21st century. Um, but that, <laughs> that, that does help you narrow down things a little bit, but there's also a lot of films there too. So I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out how to make it all work. But yeah, I, I will definitely be back very soon. If I'm not already by the time this, this is out. <laughs> Well, that's sort of perfect timing with that. Where can people find you online if they want to check you out? I am online at flickphilosopher.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Marianne Johansson. And we'll have links to that in the show notes below so people can click down there and find everything. I think there's some notes from our last appearance on your website as well. So I'm sure we'll be popping up there. Yes. Um, but yes, Marianne, once again, thank you. I, I appreciate you bringing your insights to the show. And I hope to see you at a screening in London sometime soon. That would be great. Well, there you go, folks. That was our discussion on American Made, our first ever Tom Cruise film on the mainline show. Uh, maybe not his best showing, as it were, but uh, hey, we're starting low and we're aiming, much like this film, for the skies. <laughs> These puns, Scott. These puns. <laughs> I drank a lot of coffee, Cam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so question goes to you, sir. What have we got next week? 
Yes, we are going to talk about the 1937 romantic comedy spy film, The Emperor's Candlesticks, starring William Powell and Louise Rayner. Now, this movie, maybe not the most available if you go out looking for it, but it is widely accessible on YouTube. So if you're if you can't find it on there, check all of our social media links. We'll be plugging it like crazy leading into the review, but it's out there, folks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try and get a copy and put it up on our YouTube. But if we can't, there'll be a link in the show notes below next week, the direct link right to the uh, film on YouTube. So you can make sure you get a chance to see it. But yeah, it's definitely out there very easy to find. So uh, we're making it easy for you folks. That's right. That's right. You can find the Emperor's Candlesticks for sure. (laughs) Someone can. Uh, Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Emperor's Candlesticks and join us next week. And if you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, remember, either I fly the big fella or I fly your product.